What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Corey Michael Blake. It's a bit difficult to put a label on Corey. He's many things, an entrepreneur, an actor, a director, a storyteller, a CEO, and if I might say, just a really all-around great guy. Oh, and I might add, I've given him the title of having the most contagious laugh of all time, something you'll get a taste of during the podcast. Corey's a pretty soulful guy, full of deep insights and someone who is constantly pushing himself to learn and grow. He's a student of the power of vulnerability, and we dive into a tour of his life and the many experiences and lessons that have led him to where he is today. Corey's guiding principle of life is to lead with love something that is a learned skill that requires consistent practice. Whether you're a CEO looking to up-level your leadership, or you're someone searching for a more meaningful existence at this thing we call life, this episode is loaded with authenticity and realness. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Corey Michael Blake. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Built on Purpose podcast. And I am, uh, as I say almost every time, in fact, I probably have said it every time, but I am especially thrilled today uh, to have the one, the only Corey Michael Blake joining us. Corey, what's up, man? How are you? I'm a little red in the face after that. Thanks. <laughs> uh, come on now. Come on now. I mean, for the guy that, uh, and, and I may be the only one who thinks this, although I doubt that, but uh, I have given you the title, the prestigious title of the world's greatest contagious laugh of all time. So <laughs> there's just no doubt. Get you going, our audience is in for a real treat. Oh, dude, the gauntlet has been thrown down. I love it. (laughs) Oh, Oh, man. How you been? Everything good? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you know, we're we're wrapping up, you know, 2016 right now. And um, uh, I find it to be a very fascinating time. Like, as life slows down, you know, I'm in Chicago, so winter and the weather change, I get into a much more reflective state. So there's a lot that we're pushing through to finalize the year. And at the same time, I'm finding this really strong urge to slow down and breathe and step away and, and to some extent celebrate. And a lot of people had, um, are are ready for 2016 to end. And I know it's been a challenging year for many, and it's certainly a challenging political climate, but uh, personally and professionally in my world, it's been a really exciting time. So, I'm uh, try to take time to breathe, reflect, and celebrate. Well, let's uh, let's let's stay on that for a minute. Uh, it has been an interesting year, to say the least. And given that uh, this is the time of year where you take a step back, do a little reflecting, and I know you do that throughout the year, but maybe a little extra dose of reflection. And you mentioned celebrating uh, everything that 2016 has brought uh, into your life and the life of your your, your loved ones, your team. What, uh, share with us, what, what, what's, what's caused for the celebration? What are some of the good things that have happened for you this year? Hmm. Well, first, thank you for that question. I, 
I appreciate uh, getting to kind of sit in some of that right now. It's a really nice feeling. Um, you know, the, the, the vulnerability is sexy brand, so to speak, um, was really received with a tremendous amount of love and energy this year. Um, we took a lot of risk with it. We made a lot of investment in the creation of our game, in the creation and filming of our documentary, and uh, and we've had opportunities to share those with the world now. And you know, every day uh, as a company, we use Shopify, so I get constant notifications when people are ordering the game, and I love seeing names of people that I don't know. Right, like that's really rewarding as a business owner to see something that I've created and that my team has created be so enjoyed and appreciated by the world that people we don't have a relationship with are moved to purchase or to participate. And, and so um, I think the, that that reception has been um, validation of what we believe as a company that, that when we do put ourselves out there, um, in this kind of a bold way that our tribe comes forward and makes themselves known. So that's a really, that's been a really big piece. And there's one other that I'll, that I'll mention that's particularly moving to me. And that is that uh, my colleagues in the CEO community are um, inviting me into their businesses now. And that's a really moving opportunity for me and experience for me to work with other organizations and support deep connection amidst their teams. Um, so to be going into groups and helping, whether it's to support a culture shift or helping them anchor themselves in the language of what they stand for, what their purpose is, what their values are, so that it's not just corporate jargon, but actually lives every moment in the people. Like that is really, Profound work, and I feel grateful to have been given that responsibility. Um, and and the fact that people are extending those invitations now in the way that they are is it's really moving for me. So tremendous gratitude around those just being a couple areas. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that, and and congrats to you and your team. I'm actually staring at my copy of the vulnerability a sexy game. It's sitting on my desk. The cards inside. Uh, it's just it's incredibly well done. And you did that, if I'm not mistaken, through a uh, in part through a Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, we did. Um, it's um, we did a Kickstarter campaign back in 2013 that was successful. So that was our introduction to that whole process and uh, and then we launched this one through a kickstarter campaign to kind of activate and excite our network and and at least know uh from a resonation standpoint you know what we were looking at and uh, and that proved successful so let's talk about vulnerability just for a moment uh at least uh given that it is uh, such a huge part of who you are and what you stand for and certainly at, at least at this point in your journey has manifested itself in this new creation and the vulnerability of sexy game. As you sort of retrace your life and where vulnerability as a subject and you being a student of it appeared first, 
Is there a particular point in your life when you recognize that this was going to be a pursuit for you? Is it something dating back to childhood? What was it? When did it show up? And how did you know? <laughs> that was a sinister. Um, <laughs> no, you know, it was um, uh, gratitude for the question. I haven't uh, haven't been asked this one before, so I'm noticing in myself like I don't have something that's like prepared, or uh, so I really have to kind of sit with that. But what I can share what resonates or the visually comes to mind as you asked that question and um, I look back at my time in LA, um, I was in Los Angeles from 1996 until 2005. And uh, when I kind of shifted from acting being my priority to wanting to be a more prolific storyteller, wanting to be more involved in the production, wanting to, uh, manage more of the process and and support the level of quality that I was excited by. Um, during that process, I I built you could say I, I created two storytelling companies previous to RTC, and both of them failed. Um, and both of them ultimately, I'll use the word imploded. Uh, because I made bad decisions with, uh, in terms of who I got romantic with. And that period of my life was, was wrought with like desperation and hunger and passion and pain, uh, and self torture. Um, it was a really dramatic time of my life. And, and during that time, I was kind of, I felt deeply connected to some of the people around me. Like the, the acting technique that I was learning when I was, lived in LA was called the Meisner technique. And, and it was about stripping away language and being with people in, the, in this energetic exchange that, you know, we would have 20 minute exchanges that would stay with me all week and live in my body. And so I got, I think, I'm going to use the word addicted. I got addicted to connection and addicted to being in those moments where we feel so much, whether it is um, incredible love and attraction that I might have felt to an acting partner or whether it was um, deep sadness that got triggered through an exercise, um, being in those truthful moments at that time uh, was life-giving to me. And so when you ask that question, I think it was that period when that addiction began and eventually blossomed into using it in a very <laughs> hopefully healthy way through what I do now with the company. So uh, I'm I'm curious. You mentioned uh, the Meisner technique, uh, and I'm not an actor by trade. I don't pretend to be one. But what I clued in on was the phrase uh, you used uh, describing this technique of stripping of language. And I'm curious, and and I may maybe making a connection here uh, that's a bit of a stretch. 
But one of the things that, uh, and, and you and I have had an opportunity to get to know each other a bit over the last several years, uh, each time we connect, at least my feeling is we, we pick up where we left off. There's no awkwardness. It's just easy. And, and I think part of why that is, at least for me and my experience, is when we connect, you don't appear ever to be distracted when we're together. And there could be a lot of things going on in the room that we're in. There could be a lot of things going on in your life, but you somehow manage to, I think, uh, buck the default of distraction and you're able to be really, really present. Do you think, and again, maybe I'm making a bit of a leap here, but part of the Meisner technique and the stripping of language and really connecting with people, do you think that in some way has helped you uh, practice this uh, bucking of our default trend of, of being distracted and has allowed you to be more present with people the way I've perceived it to be? Massively. And I'm, I'm so appreciating your awareness and that you picked up on that because it's, it's really fun for me to hear. Um, yes, that, that process invited me into what I now call hyper-presence, where the rest of the world melts away. Um, I remember, as I'm sharing this right now, I remember moments um, when we were studying, this was back in, I think, 2001, um, we'd, be, we'd be doing exercises at a local coffee shop after class. And, and I remember being with people in the midst of an exercise, they're always one-on-one, and the rest of the coffee shop totally fading away. And I experienced life like that all the time now. But back then, I recognized how unique it was. And even amongst my classmates, um, how challenged most of them were to really let everything else go and just be with the person that's across from them. Um, I took a, I have a, a uh, potential client that we're talking with right now is this fascinating guy. And he, and he asked me to take this, um, uh, this um, assessment test kind of, um, you know, it's one of these wonderful assessments that helps kind of determine where you are in your journey. And it noted that my top two values are presence and congruence. And presence you've already highlighted and, and congruence, the way that it defines congruence is alignment between, these are this is my interpretation of their words, but, but the alignment of uh, truth and language. And that is so me. It's what I pay attention to all the time. And, and, and hearing, you know, even that moment where you were able to pick up on that correlation to me, that's congruence. That's a moment of two things and they feel like they feel like they belong together right and checking that out and then inviting me into the opportunity to share in return like to me that is a massive awesome beautiful gift so thank you for that and um, and yes being um, going through that program was the awakening for me of the beauty of presence and um, and since then, I, I speak of it now as the greatest gift that we can give to one another is to 100% be with each other. Well, I mean, we've all been in a situation, whether it's at home or at work with friends where, you know, you want to engage deeply with someone about a topic that's important and 
You can feel when someone's distracted, when whether it's the, the phone is ringing or a text message or a passerby catches their gaze. Um, you know, and it, it, it's, it can be a bit off-putting. I mean, let's be honest. It certainly is for me if I want to engage with someone and I recognize and can feel that they're not nearly as connected to uh, whatever topic it is or conversation that I'd like to bring about. And it, and it can, um, it can serve as a real detractor from wanting to get deep, deep with people. And so, you know, while I, I appreciate your thanking me for recognizing, I, I think there's uh, more of this presence that needs to be taught. Um, and dare I say at an early age, as you know, I watch my girls grow up, I've got young daughters and I see how much their life is being consumed by staring into a screen. And, uh, you know, and I'm certainly not the first to bring this up, but it is, it's a, a tad bit frightening that our, our humans, are we losing our humanness um, as technology continues to blossom and help us do amazing things at the same time? But how do we balance both? And it's, uh, so I think you're doing a great job. Thank you. I, I'll say, um, this kind of presence, I, I didn't experience in my youth either. Like, so I, I don't know that it was the distraction of technology. I would imagine technology amplifies the opportunity for distraction. Um, but I think uh, I had to have some, some pivotal moments and some training that invited me into what this level of presence is. And I would imagine something has transpired for you in your past that invited you into that because I don't, it's not inherent. Uh, something about us is not, I, I don't think it's natural, or at least um, society, if, if we were born with the natural instinct to be in that kind of connection, um, society has pulled us away from that. Um, I'll actually say, as I'm saying that out loud, I'm recalling um, something I, I've shared here and there. Um, my first, the first time I felt this level of human connection was when I was 10 years old at my grandmother's house and my aunt brought over my new cousin. And I don't, I don't know how old he was, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months, but I think it was my first time that I got to spend with him. And I remember him laying on the floor and me just kind of hovering over this baby and, and staring at this kid and feeling profoundly moved as we gazed into each other's eyes. Like I say that out loud, it sounds, it, it, it feels a little weird, but it wasn't. It was like it was beautiful, and I have um, this tremendous connection with my cousin, who's now, of course, you know, like in his thirties. Um, but that was the first moment where that level of of hyper presence uh, occurred for me. And it's not. You're right. It's not intuitive, or it's not. Uh, it's not taught. And as you and I have discussed about the conscious capital movement which you know, we're both highly participatory in, that level of presence to me is a key ingredient that I feel a responsibility to help heighten. Well, and it, uh, it takes practice, right? I mean, like with anything uh, that isn't uh, inherent <clears throat> or natural, it, it, it just takes practice and, uh, and some focus. So um, it's, uh, I, I recognize it, and uh, it's certainly one of the many things that uh, I admire most about, uh, about being with you. I um I, I thank you I, absolutely. I want to talk about. No, I don't want, know that we want to spend too much time on it, but I think it's fascinating. I mean, when you after you finished school uh, and you had mentioned your time spent out in L.A., um, 
you know, you're certainly, and please don't take this the wrong way. You know, you haven't grown up to be, you know, the Brad Pitts or the the George Clooney's of the world, but you had a pretty damn successful run in LA uh, in some different venues. I know you were in a, a really well-known Super Bowl ad for Mountain Dew. I think there was another ad that you were in where you were uh, like a naked guy playing basketball. Forgive me the brand that uh, it was a commercial for. You were in the movie <laughs> Fight Club. Uh, I mean, you've done some pretty cool things. Talk, talk to me about what – I mean, I, I've spent time in L.A. as a visitor but have never lived there and have never tried my hand at acting nor planned to. I mean, is the – the chaos of LA, what most suspect it to be in the politics and just sort of the, you know, perceived superficial nature of LA and the acting community. Is it, is it truly that? What was your experience? Uh, what I'll share is that um, I don't believe it is that for everyone. I do believe it was very much that way for me. Um, I had a strong hunger to be successful out there and, uh, and I brought my very competitive nature and, which is eased <laughs> since my time in LA, which is healthy, but, uh, but I was highly competitive back then, wanted to be the one among my friends who was doing the best. Like that was important to me as a sense of my identity. Um, so as a result of that, I, I, when I look back at my time there, I describe it as um, I, I became what I thought LA wanted me to be in order to get where I thought I wanted to go. And I got I, where, where, you know, the, the energy directed me was I was being pulled into the commercial world. And you know, I just certainly didn't go to LA to be a commercial actor, but commercials pay really well. And so I found myself building a career, uh, being a spokesperson for, you know, major brands. And I did a bunch of work and it was exciting to get the work and it was exciting to audition for the work until it hit a point where it just wasn't anymore. When I started producing and directing some projects, I found auditions to be a distraction and I started finding myself angry when I'd be stuck in traffic trying to get to an audition that was taking me away from what I really enjoyed, which was more control over my creativity. Um, as an actor, I felt like a tool for other creative people. And that was a, f a reflection of you know, where I was at the time uh, in the industry. Um, I was not a star, right? So I was still you know, a hired gun. And, and I would show up and always felt like I was entering someone else's family. And I was a visitor. And I would come and I would do my job and then I would leave. And you know, they might have spent a month or a year or years together before I came and went. And I think that was that understanding um, was eventually what kind of depressed my state, always being someone who was not really part of, but a visitor to was a very disconnecting experience for me. And that was ultimately, I think what started pushing me away from continuing in that regard. Like, if I was to have gotten series regular roles or a major film, you know, that might have changed, in which case I might have had more input. But I think ultimately, for the most part, actors are not viewed that way. They, they don't get creative control. They come in, they do a job, they go home. 
they have a creative contribution, but I wanted, I found that I wanted to be a part of a project from start to finish. And that meant that I had to change my direction. And so is that sort of realization what led you to uh, writers of the round table and eventually round table companies is, is this, this uh, more controlling aspect of, of, uh, you know, seeing a project through from start to finish, from cradle to grave, from creativity, input, editing, on and on and on. Is that uh, is that part of what led you to do this? Um, not strategically, but if if I you know if I look back at the path, absolutely. So I had been successful in commercials. I didn't need a day job, right? So I got to study acting. I got to rehearse a lot. I got to go on auditions and then eventually I, I, so I saw this, um, 45 minute PBS documentary, uh, while I was in college on a guy named Harold Klurman, who uh, eventually started the group theater in the 1930s. And the group theater went on to become Broadway and then Hollywood. And he described himself as a generator. He was not the best actor, not the best director, but he was the person who brought the talent together to create art around what was important to speak of during the day. So they did plays on the taxi strike in New York and the topical issues going on. And when I pulled that video out again while I was in L.A., I had that epiphany moment of that's who I want to be. And so I invited uh, nine of my other classmates in my acting school to join me at Mammoth, um, Mammoth Lakes in a lodge. And um, I said, I'll pay for the cabin if everyone will contribute to food. And eight out of the nine people said yes. And we went up there for three, four, five days. I don't remember the duration. Um, And kind of started the first iteration of a storytelling company. And it was such a stunning loving experience that that became my new addiction. And from there we started making films and, and then started winning awards when we took them around to film festivals and, um, and, but eventually that still, you know, led to the, 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 the understanding that, you know, my work would need millions of dollars behind it in order to be seen. Or ultimately I could create a lot of stuff that would sit on a shelf. And that was eventually the reason to transition over to the writing world and to books, uh, which became the impetus for writers of the round table, because, you know, on a much more modest budget, you can create something and start going out into the world and changing lives. I'm curious, is this where you ended up uh, connecting with Robert Renteria I want to talk a little bit about from the Barrio to the Boardroom Foundation. And I feel like this is the right sort of uh, place in time of when that started to enter your (laughs) periphery, but maybe I'm off uh, chronologically. No, you So correct, uh, you know, (laughs) correct me here. (laughs) No, you're dead on. So so I started uh, Writers of the Roundtable in a very practical way. I recognized, you know, I was leaving LA, I was getting married. I needed to start finding a way to generate income that wasn't tied to Los Angeles, you know, which means you get checks when you get checks, but you really don't have control over when they come. (laughs) You know, you do a commercial and 
if it airs, you make a bunch of money, and if it doesn't, you just get your day rate. And so um, I wanted to create something that was more stable, and I realized, uh, like I think I was playing around like on Craigslist, and um, and I was applying for writing jobs that looked creative, uh, just to kind of get my feet wet there. And what I found was there were all kinds of writing jobs I couldn't do, but that I was curious about. And so I founded the business originally um, as a conduit between writers and business people who needed quality writing. And I knew that I could talk to both, but that they typically didn't know how to talk to each other. So I wasn't just an agent where I would find work for someone and say, good luck. Like I, I became integrally involved and, and initially built the business that way. But then because of my LA background and my storytelling and, and my theater degree, uh, Robert Renteria crossed my path. And I saw he had placed an advertisement on uh, Elance, which I think still exists. It's like a, you know, kind of a broker place for writers and people who are looking for writers. And he was looking for someone to help him with his biography. Um, uh, I communicated with him and then I went and visited him at his office. And in our, at our initial meeting, when Robert talked about the life that he had lived and how he wanted to use that to inspire people, um, when I talked to him about helping him to paint that picture, I got emotional and like tears came to my eyes. Uh, I remember that first meeting really well. And, and then of course we had to negotiate circumstances, you know, figure out how we were going to work together. But yeah, that became, I think we worked for a solid year and a half putting that first book together. And that again, kicked off a whole new addiction. <laughs> I have my, my many addictions, a new addiction around uh, creating things that, um, that, 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 pushed people to make dramatic changes in their lives. Did you know about his story prior to uh, Elance or the Craigslist response uh, that you responded no. to? Wow. No, no, that was the first that I had heard of him. And so I'm curious, so this desire that that he had to use his story um, as curriculum to help people make different choices than, than, you know, the earlier ones he did. Was that part of his vision? Was it your vision? Was it, was it a combined vision? Did that emerge from the creative process? Talk a little bit about that. I have a tendency to, um, or an availability to see what's possible for somebody, um, typically way beyond what they can see. And it's not to say that it's correct. It's just a vision. Like I get, I get kind of this clarity around how someone can impact the world. And I certainly saw that for Robert. Um, but he had no idea what he was getting into. <laughs> he really, you know, he, he, he felt like he needed to share his story. And he's a, he's a salesman by nature. Um, so I think he recognized some piece of him recognized that this was a, a, a fun vehicle for maybe to pull him away from, you know, kind of the life that he had, that he was in. Um, but only through putting the story together and really pushing him to get honest and share the real stuff, um, you know, which took months to really start to get into, um, to build that trust between him and I so that he started to tell me the real thing. 
that eventually culminated in what's a very emotional book for people to read. And I think the moment that it, that it became available to him in a whole new way was right after the book release. Um, the local paper did a, like a front page story on him. And he got a phone call that morning, like 7 a.m. And he loves telling the story, and I always love hearing it. But he, he had a woman who called him and said, is this Robert Renteria? And you know, Robert answers his phone. He's a sales guy. Your phone rings, you answer it. Robert's on the phone with this woman at 7 o'clock, and she says to him, where have you been? And then she pauses, and then she says it again. Where have you been? And that was his awakening that the community needed him. And, uh, and he caught the bug at that point and started thinking much more long-term about how to use his story to inspire people. And then, you know, as I think for anyone in this position, you have the, the dream or the idea of what it can be, but when it, you, only when it's actualized in feedback can you start to understand the energetic power of what you've created, and you have to follow that energy. So when we heard stories of kids who were dropping out of gangs or when we heard stories of gangs who were, um, who were penalizing gang members who were seen with Robert's book, or when we heard stories about teachers who were, who said to us, we're, we are figuratively using your book as a curriculum in the classroom. Like we're studying it for two weeks. Um, those stories fueled where we took the movement and where we put more energy, uh, and where we really built it from. Uh, but no, he had no, he had no idea what he was getting into. He just had a belief that his story could matter. Well, I do, I have to mention because I sort of introduced, uh, the Robert Renteria topic here in our conversation, uh, perhaps a bit out of left field. And there's probably a few folks listening that uh, don't know about Robert. They don't know the From the Barrio to the Boardroom book and his story. So for those of you out there that want to do a little digging on it, uh, probably the best place, and Corey, correct me if I'm wrong, is fromthebarrio.com. And they can learn all about the story as well as the foundation, the curriculum, and everything that's happening around it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd actually say at this point, you know, Googling Robert's name uh, yields phenomenal um, information. We did a, we did the original book with him and then teachers came back to us and said, you've got to, you've got to get to these kids at a younger age. And so we did a comic book version and then they came back again and said, you got to push still younger. And so we did a coloring book that introduces the conversation on gangs and drugs, you know, to five and six year old kids. Um, so these, uh, yeah, all of that. Yeah, these these graphic novel translations of of popular books and and you know this idea of leveraging uh, a pictorial version of stories to remarket uh, or market in a new way popular books is really something that uh, I think you've been incredibly successful with. Um, where did that all emerge from? Uh, that started with a conversation. Um, we would, um, back at this time, maybe this was 2010 or so, um, we would have conversations with all of our staff members. We called it dreaming time. And, uh, we always, we wanted to know what are we not doing that you would love to do? And our creative director, Nathan Brown at the time said, uh, I grew up on comic books. If you could get us into comic books, like that would be heaven. And 
lo and behold, as a result of that conversation, I think my antenna just went up and, uh, and someone came across the desk, so to speak, who had some curiosity around creating a nonfiction comic book series based on best-selling business books. And we had some initial dialogue and I created a bid and a proposal and this guy ended up going with someone else. But I think because of the way that Nathan expressed to me how important it would be to him or how valuable it would be to him if we could do this, I fought for it. And I went back to this guy and I said, I fully respect your decision. I would love to hear why it is that you made the decision to go with this other group. Um, if there's any valuable feedback that we could hear for our process, I would be really open to that. And so we stayed in touch. And a month later, when he wasn't happy with his decision, he came back to us. And, um, and he had been a former investment banker. And he was willing to make the investment in a series of prototype comic books. And so we did three. We did, um, <laughs> we did Dale Carnegie's uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits, and we did uh, Think and Grow Rich. And we took them around and, and showed folks. And, and while Stephen Covey um, and, uh, and Dale Carnegie's people turned us down and didn't want us to utilize the books, they created conversations and we, we got our first, I think, four best-selling authors on board. We did the, a series of the first six books. Roberts ended up being one of them because this guy wanted to make the investment in Roberts' story. We launched them at Hudson News Airport bookstores around the country, and that got us into full-fledged book distribution. And then that relationship came to an end with that comic book company because we had some differences. He wanted to go less expensive, lower quality. Quality was not as important to him as it was to me. I think he wanted to do more quantity. And so we parted ways, um, and we created Roundtable Comics. And we got on board Tony Shea from Zappos and Marshall Goldsmith and Robert Cialdini. And suddenly we were off to the races again doing our own series. And, um, and we continue to this day. We've done a whole bunch of them for um, disabled children around autism and prodder Willie and reactive attachment disorder, helping kids to understand disabilities that they face. And um, just the other day, we signed another contract to do a, a longer uh, comic business book with a thought leader. So it's a continual part of our business and we freaking love it. That's awesome. So with, let, let's talk <laughs> about, let's talk about round table companies for a minute here. And, you know, I, I, I would probably uh, do some level of justice in explaining what RTC is to our audience. But why don't you, let's just start from the bare bones basic. How, how best would you describe what Roundtable Companies is and does? I have to take a deep breath because I never know what's going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> we're, we're such a, we're such a, we're a weird company. Like I, we're an amazing, brilliant, loving company, but but we're non-traditional. Like there's nothing else like us that, that quite exists in the world, at least to my awareness. And so, you know, we were born as a book writing company. That was our first love, helping people to write the book that they were born to write, which is very different than, you know, to write a traditional information book. Like we write very moving, page-turning, emotional books. And as a result of putting those out in the world and the love and the deep bond that was created with our clients and our staff, 
our clients said, you've got to do more for us. You've got to figure out how to do much more uh, so we can stay a part of your family. Otherwise, we're done with the book and, and they move on and they, like, they felt lonely and moving on. They wanted to stay part of the family. So, so we built out this whole array of services for thought leaders. How do we support them in their brand identity? How do we support them in telling their story in all kinds of different ways so that people get to the point where they want to read the book, right? I described the book as going to bed with someone. And you can't, you know, when you first meet someone, you can't invite them to bed. That's, it's, that's a real, that's, a, that's an intense request. So how do we create the ecosystem around a thought leader so that people go through, you know, my whole step ladder of flirting and coughing and dating, coffee and dating and getting into a relationship with the brand to the point where they then want to curl up with the book and hopefully the idea is by the time they get to the end of the book, they feel like their life has changed as a result. So that was this huge focus of our work at RTC, supporting that thought leader. Well, that blossomed into what are the other creative ways we can support them, which grew into illustration and comic books and graphic novels. And then because we were attracting all of these world-class, amazing, talented people, um, we kind of found that we had access to incredible levels of, of genius, especially in the coaching world. And, and so um, we started hiring more coaches and getting coached more and, and learned so much about that space, recognizing that ultimately what I believe coaching to be or the world of executive coaching is helping people to tell a new story. So we found this correlation through storytelling, and then, and then we got opened up to, okay, how can storytelling help shift a culture in a business? How can storytelling help amplify what a business stands for so that the world can truly see the essence of the company and know if, if they want to be a customer or if they're totally repelled? Um, so we expanded all of these services, and then I got involved in conscious capitalism and Stegen, and I'm a very different creature in those worlds for the most part because I come with a theater degree and a love of play and storytelling, you know, whereas the, the most of these business communities have been spending so much time growing the strength of their mind, not necessarily their embodiment. And so I was, I, I started attracting people around me in those communities who were curious to learn some of the pieces I had picked up because they wanted to bring them back into their companies. And so that's opened this whole new aspect of our business in training leaders and supporting leaders in telling a new story that then can be amplified through the company internally, externally. So a long answer to your question. No, it's, a, it's a, give the evolution. It's a great answer. And, and I, uh, I just, as you were explaining the 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 major difference between some of the other leaders you interact with who have spent so much time developing their mind you're like Corey Blake the the gateway drug to nourishing the soul like you're such the yin to everyone's yang when you're in those environments i just laughed at the same time i'm really touched that is that is an incredibly kind comment um and that that is i think when I'm in those environments, that's the responsibility I feel. It's like I want to get people in that moment of connection where they can feel seen 
because so many of us go through our day, especially in the business world, not really having access to that level of depth. And, I, and in my experience, life is so different when you have the ability to be present with the people that you have come together to say, we're going to change the world in this specific way through this company. Like when we can get people into that space who can have conversations from that place of presence and personal development where they know their triggers and they know what's them and what's other people and you can do some differentiating instead of just blaming each other. Like that is a, an entirely different way to live. And I, yes, I feel personally responsible to invite people as the gateway into a more soulful, heartfelt experience of life. And so this whole guiding principle of yours, and at least what I've picked up, and, and I hope you'd agree that, you know, if, if you were asked, what is your guiding principle uh, of life? And, and I would answer if I were you, and based on what I've picked up again is, you lead with love. You approach everything from a place of love first. Um, a, a, am I correct? And B, uh, if indeed I am, you know that's that's easier to do when things are going swimmingly well, but really hard to do when times are tough and challenges arise. So, you know, A, have I picked up on on what you're putting down? And B, how, how do you approach it? How do you approach tough times lovingly and not get tripped up in the default of blame and anger and you know some of our our, our default humanness that uh, rears its head? First off, thank you for seeing me. Like I am having the experience now of um, uh, of feeling. I'm going to describe it as warmth over being seen. Like you, you, you know me. <laughs> <laughs> to say that out loud, like I, I feel seen. So yes, our guiding principle is leading with love. Our two primary core values that we really try to filter our decisions through are love and brilliance. Love from the standpoint of relationships and how we interact with each other and brilliance in terms of the, the product output, what we create for the world. So, so the question around leading with love, and I think absolutely the, the, <laughs> The challenge that I watch so many people, including myself, face is um, values are awesome when they're convenient. And when they're inconvenient, it's very easy to toss them into the river. Um, so uh, I'm far from perfect at it. Right? I struggle constantly. I, I feel like every day I start at zero with love, brilliance, and leading with love. Um, and every day I, I have to be intentional about uh, where am I applying those filters? And it's not always easy. I, uh, there's one story that sticks with me that, that I love to share in, in relation to this and the humanity of it. And, and so I'll share that. It's a short story that I had a couple of um, writers on our team who are working with a client. And, um, and the client brought in um, someone else on his team to support the project for a period of time. And my writing staff was really not gelling with the person that this client brought in and eventually came to me and said, um, we want off this project um, because we feel that this is getting to the point of abuse. We feel abused by this person. And, you know, my human guttural instinct reaction was, 
I got a lot to do today. Can you just pull up your pants, get this done? Like, come on now, right? <laughs> New job. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> right. And then of course I have to slow myself down and go, okay, are we going to, um, are we going to hang these beautiful values on the wall and just point to them when they're convenient or, or am I going to choose to show up today? And, and so I moved some things around and made some time and said, can we get on the phone this afternoon? And it ended up taking a good 75 minutes, right? These conversations, one of the things about really living values is you have to make time for them. And that is not easy for people to make sense of. Although the reality is if we don't make time for them, we spend huge amounts of time cleaning up messes. So in this situation, got on the phone with these two writers and, and I asked each of them one at a time to share with me what socked them in the gut around the experience with working with this person. And turns out, I think both of the writers came to me believing that they were unified in what they were reacting to. Turns out that as they each unpacked what hit them in the gut, they had totally different reasons for feeling the way that they did. Hmm. So that was really valuable for them to come to understand. And then after hearing what they shared with me and how personal those triggers were, like this is deep stuff, like the way that this person talked to them, you know, for one person, you know, had relationships to how they're trying to live their boundaries, right? And for the other one, it's like, you know, old time um, relationship with other people in their life, like whether it was parents or, or siblings, you know, the, the, the way in which we react when people treat us a certain way. So hearing those stories, I was able to, to, to respond and reflect and say, my goodness, I totally understand why you do not want to be in this engagement any longer. And I can't fault you for that. What turned out was that as a result, initially, they were, they were calling me in to clean up this mess and help them exit. And, and what ended up happening was because they felt heard, and this is my interpretation of the story, because they felt heard, they actually asked to not include me in the conversation and they wanted to go back to the client and share with the client what had been told to me so the client could understand why they were being triggered. And they ended up deepening their relationship with the client, totally refreshing the energy around the project and were excited to finish it. So it was not convenient for me to set aside 75 unplanned minutes during the day and it wasn't convenient for them either. Like everyone's got their laundry list of stuff they're trying to get done. But to slow life down and say, this is a core value conversation. We, it's important to have. It changed the trajectory, deepened a relationship, bettered an outcome. And the alternative would have been bringing two people into a project that was already nine months underway. Massive time, energy, and resources that would have to be deployed because people weren't willing to have a challenging conversation. So we created the space for that. And that's, to me, what leading with love is. Now, like I said, I am, it is not always perfect. And there are plenty of times where I could make that choice and choose not to, or I'm blind to the choice and don't even realize it's a core value opportunity, right? So it, it's far from perfect, but the intention is to, is to pay attention to those on a daily basis and make decisions based on what we say we stand for. Well, and it's a great example of, you know, the difference between throwing values up on the wall and actually really, as, as you, as you said, taking the time to, to live them and, and have them show up. And that particular example that you shared, the story that you shared, you know, thankfully, 
in the way in which the critical or crucial conversation was handled by your team, you know, the client listened and responded in a way that uh, sounded like it, there was a, a, a spirit of compromise to find a good resolution for everyone. And, you know, that's not always the case. There are plenty of businesses out there that, uh, and I've uh, unfortunately worked with some of them where when they hire a company as a supplier or a partner or a vendor, they they treat them as, uh, you know, subservient to them. Like, listen, I'm paying you. You are here to do the work that I tell you to do. And if you don't like it, tough. And, uh, you know, that, that, that those situations make it that much more difficult to show up, at least in my experience, uh, from a place of love and continue to lean on it. But then again, maybe that's exactly the time w- when we should in hope uh, in hopes that uh, the client will come around and, and really be present and hear uh, the challenges or struggles that we might be having and serving their needs and wanting to get to a great outcome for them. Well, look, this stuff happens at home too, right? So the other day, you know, the holidays come around and, you know, our house is probably typical of many and some, some emotions get heightened and some triggers get extra sensitive. And, my wife and I were having a conversation the other morning that all of a sudden just freaking spun out of control. And I was so angry. And I was just like, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to punish her in return, feeling like she was punishing me. Like, you know, it, it got to, it got to that point of that place where I, I like, I go once every couple of years at this point, but like, it reminds me of my early relationship with her where like, this was a sometimes daily occurrence. Like we had to navigate <laughs> You know, that all of the wonderful triggers of falling in love. And, and, um, and I had this moment the other day where we were in the heat of it. And I was, I'm, I'm, I have enough internal awareness now that I can watch myself reacting and I can be observant as opposed to being in the toxicity of the chemicals in my body and the adrenaline, which is also happening. But there came this point where I started laughing. And this is the first time that that had happened. Amidst this stuff. I started laughing and I go, what are we doing? And, and it was great, right? It was, it was, it was the moment of, of awareness of, oh, we're just, you know, we're, we're just in the trigger. We're just in the game and the heat of this stuff. Um, and I think that's ultimately the, the correlation to business is we're, we're triggered all the time. And if we're not, if, if we are led by the trigger, then we're emotionally responsive. But if we understand ourselves and what's going on for us when we're triggered and we take the time to slow down and ask some questions and find out, figure out like, where's this coming from? As opposed to just blaming the external entity that's causing the trigger, doing some work internally and figuring out why am I having this reaction? It can become freaking humorous <laughs> or, or sad or like you know, it could be all kinds of things, but the ability to come from that place and recognize our experience in it, that can save the longevity of relationships in big ways. It's such a huge piece for businesses. And I would say it is, you know, I, I don't know, I'd estimate it's being utilized 1% of the time. Yeah. And the, uh, it, it reminds me of the famous quote by Chris Rock, the comedian, that if you've never really contemplated murder, then you've never really been in love. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's so horribly true. <laughs> uh, it is, yeah. it is. But on a on a serious note, you know that that I think what you're mentioning, or at least what comes up for me is you know, the power of the pause. Right, just take a moment 
and take a breath, take a step back, whatever it is that, you know, whatever short time delay I can place between uh, response and reaction or, you know, the, the, the incident and whatever my response or reaction is going to be. If I can just take a moment and say, okay, wait a second, I'm going to react here. My default is one that I'm likely not going to be super proud of. So can I take a moment, give myself just a second, a split second even, to think about what's happening here and give myself a chance uh, to catch up with my emotion, give my brain a chance to catch up to my emotion is, uh, you know, for me is what I'm part of what I'm hearing, uh, given the story you shared about, uh, you know, you and your wife. So in, in, it's absolute, like it is the key first step, absolute key first step. Um, I love that you brought that up. What, what I'm aware of is that through, um, through this training that I've done at the Gestalt Institute, which you and I have spoken about before, um, it is the internal body awareness for me, that has been the game changer. So for me to be able to, during that pause, during that slow time where I'm breathing, figure out where is this occurring for me in my body? Is this hitting me in the gut? Is this hitting me in the heart? Is this giving me a headache? Um, what is my, like are my hands ringing, right? With, with energy and my, and my clenched fist. Starting to unpack my embodied experience of those moments helps me further understand um, how something's occurring for me and to take it a step further than um, what from my story, what from my past, what from my life is being triggered and being activated. And as soon as I have awareness around that, it's no longer about the other person as the instrument of my pain, which is my go-to. Like I'm a natural, my natural instinct, I'm a blamer, right? If I'm uncomfortable, who did it? That is totally my default. So I've had to do a whole bunch of work to kind of uh, find a more graceful state where I can be with myself, even when other people may be the cause of a trigger. When we trigger each other, most of us don't have any freaking idea it's even happened. And then we just become uh, the outlet for that, for that individual to express the discomfort that's been caused without knowing what we even did. So in that pause uh, through this work, having greater access to understanding myself and my own experience and getting to a point where I can say, oh, I'm just angry right now, right? Or, oh, I'm just feeling like, wow, I'm feeling an intense amount of anxiety or I can, I can feel my blood flowing. It's telling me something. What's it telling me? And being curious about that as opposed to being reactive as a result, for me, that has been just a, a magical place from which to exist, make decisions, and create opportunity because ultimately, Brian, people feel safer with me because I know how to manage myself. And as a result, we get to do more cool shit in the world. Yeah, that's, I mean, and therein lies, I think, the, the most amazing outcome of all this work and this practice that you're consistently engaged in, that it leads to much more productive, fruitful, enjoyable, positive outcomes for everybody that you're with and the people that you are uh, looking to impact through whatever the project happens to be focused on. It's, it's great stuff. You know, one of the things that you mentioned, it just uh, brought up a thought for me that we had touched on one time, uh, not too terribly long ago, but I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, and this may take us into uh, in, into a part two someday of of getting together and, and having more conversation. 
But in all of this work you've been doing, uh, whether it be through Stegen, whether it be through Gestalt, one of the areas that I think is so fascinating and all these learning opportunities that you take advantage of and that we connect with one another at, whether it's through conferences and the like, is that leaders, whether male or female, go to these events, uh, whether it's an individualized learning or a group learning, and oftentimes they're there without their significant other or their spouse or their life partner. And they go and they have these breakthrough moments, some of them big, some of them small. And then they go back to an environment where only half of the equation experienced the breakthrough. And it's so fascinating to me that the opportunity to invite the significant other, the life partner, the spouse to join in these breakthrough environments is not offered more often to because re- I think, you know, to really push through, if you're attempting to work on something that's going to impact your work as a leader, to not also recognize how important it is that you'll only reach the level of impact in the work if the, the support system in particular, your life partner, significant other spouse is seeing you and potentially experiencing those same breakthroughs with you. And, and so that's sort of my best teeing up of this previous chat we had, but we didn't dive into it uh, and to any level of depth. I'm, I'm curious as I sort of tee that up for you, what comes up? Let's talk about this for a second. Uh, thank you for the entry to that conversation. There was a lot of energy around it. I know in our previous conversation. Um, so my, my, my belief around this, um, which is fueled and certainly in part through the work at RTC, because, um, clients that come to us for this process, especially writing the book they were born to write their relationship with their significant other is, is a fascinating piece of uh, of this equation because they've come to us amidst identity shift and significant others oftentimes like, well, while we say we want the best for each other, it's also human nature to be invested in each other's consistency. Consistency feels safe. So as soon as our partner starts changing, it can really freak out the dynamic. Um, what I now, now you mentioned that it's not offered a lot that, that spouses, you know, can come and join in an experience. Um, and that's certainly my experience as well. Um, however, I would say that if it were offered, I think very few people would take advantage of it because my experience is that like most of my classmates at Stegen, I want to say I was the only person, no, there was one other person in my class who said that her spouse was on this journey with her. Everyone else said their spouse, you know, it's not unusual for spouses to set rules to not bring that back into the house. I don't want to hear about it. It's not atypical at all. And so we have to, we have to support our significant other in recognizing the importance. Um, I was on the phone yesterday with a master coach um, who was talking about, you know, from his experience, if our significant other is not willing to go on the self-actualization journey, there is, there is no way the relationship can survive. At some point, it will destruct. And he says this from the standpoint of, you know, he got divorced after 25 years of marriage for this exact reason. 
So it is such a huge piece in my relationship. And I share this story publicly, like the only way that we got there was me pressing for three years about the importance of a shift in our direction because I felt myself expanding and changing. And I was nervous. It was my 39th birthday when I realized, you know, 40 is coming next year. And if I don't feel like we're on the same path, I can tell right now I'm going to freak out. <laughs> I'm going to totally freak out about our future potential. And I said this to my wife and, and she's, you know, her blocks, um, you know, I, I'm married to a woman who is, um, her natural default is privacy, intense privacy. And, um, and so for me to ask her to participate in these public vulnerable experiences around personal development was, you know, it caused her to tremble on the inside. It was something, it wasn't that she didn't want to, she felt like she could not do it. And so I had to come to understand that. So I didn't take it personally. And at the same time, she had to understand that the impact of her inability to be a partner in this was creating an incredible loneliness in me. And I was going out into the world, having these beautiful experiences, but ultimately feeling lonely. And that felt unsafe to me. Um, and only through a rock bottom experience where I went out into the world and, and had a very, uh, like had a spiritual awakening next to a woman who had a spiritual awakening during a conference. And then of course, we're looking at each other going, what is the universe telling us? Right. I had a, I had an opportunity to be unfaithful to my wife because I, there was the connection that I, that I'm always seeking and it was right next to me and it happened and it should have been my wife, but it wasn't because she couldn't be there. That moment, and me coming back home and fully unpacking that with her helps her to recognize if she didn't figure out how to get through her discomfort that we were in real trouble and I was going to probably leave. Like that reality had to hit her hard enough that she was willing to face that discomfort. And she joined me on that 18 month Gestalt program and it was life saving for our relationship. It breathed tremendous energy into our relationship. We have now a way to communicate. I get to watch her take it back into her life. We talk about it. It comes up all the time. Like it has been beautiful connective tissue and expansion tissue. So I recognize like how hard it is because I'm telling people like <laughs> the only way this was possible in my life was an ultimatum and rock bottom moments, like serious pain and torture that we had to find our way through, but had we not, we wouldn't have made it. Um, I don't wish that on anyone, and yet I wish it on everyone because I want to see other people have that kind of relationship to support their work in the world, their life, and the vibrancy of their life. Well, and it's uh, relationships are they're by nature hard. I mean, you're going to dedicate, and I've been. Uh, married, uh, it'll be 18 years for my wife and I in February, and uh, I'm not looking for any kudos to that. And at the same time, it's hard work. Relationships are hard work. And, you know, to really recognize and be willing to exhibit the kind of courage to lay down an ultimatum, especially when you felt you were growing in a direction that was going to eventually leave her behind and create too big of a gap, uh, which would obviously have uh, some negative impacts on the relationship. Uh, it just it takes a lot of courage to do and relationships are hard. And 
uh, you know, I think if more people were to really uh, work on it in that way, work on relationships in this way, uh, you know, people would, would likely end up living uh, happier, you know, lives together as opposed to uh, calling it quits or throwing in the towel early on. There, there's, as you pointed out, uh, for me, I experienced the same. My wife, Jackie, and I, you know, there were plenty of those drop down, uh, drop dead drag out moments where it's like, what? Like, I don't, we don't even like each other today. Uh, and it's a, it can be a roller coaster ride, but we've had some of those similar experiences through uh, weekend retreats and trainings and things like that, where, you know, the, the environment uh, was built for us to let it all out. And the expectation was we're going to get to a better place as a result. And that's exactly what happened. And it's been, uh, it's been a great ride uh, with some bumps along the way, but, uh, but I appreciate you sharing the story. Yeah, I, I love hearing it. And I, I'm also feeling the responsibility to say out loud that we could not have done it without like a master therapist, right? And, and masterful facilitators at the Gestalt Institute. Like, so I've, I've always recognized this is something that we could not have done on our own and navigated it. It required, uh, it required people creating a safe space for us to have dialogue that was so um, uh, kinetic, chaotic, in nature, so triggering in nature, right? Uh, that's, I guess, my, my biggest takeaway regarding couples and the importance of this kind of um, connection and work is you, you have to get support in learning how to hear each other. Uh, it's just not intuitive and, and there's so much going on. It's, it's a dangerous zone. Uh, and like you said, requires tremendous courage, but also expertise. Well, it's, you know, it's, uh, you just sort of take a, take a step back and you look at a relationship and two people entering into uh, a relationship and wanting to be successful at it with almost anything that we as humans do in our lives. If we want to be great at it, whether it's athletes uh, or, or athletics or sports, uh, business, whatever it is. You know, there are coaches everywhere. And so why more folks don't take advantage of coaching opportunities when it comes to relationships, uh, it seems to me to be some low hanging fruit uh, that certainly more folks could take advantage of. But uh, yeah, a, a, a great, mm. a, a great topic of conversation for sure. And um, <laughs> I have a feeling we could go on and on and on. There is no <laughs> lack of uh, excitement around the conversations and topics that, uh, that I know I could bring up. I, man, I love talking to you, Corey. It's just, it's so the best word I can use uh, that feels most appropriate. It's just easy. You're an easy guy to get along with. You're real authentic. The stories are great. Uh, and I love chatting with you and, uh, and I just, uh, I, I so appreciate you taking the time out to do this and, uh, and I hope our audience that tunes in gets as much out of this as I did and continuing to get to know you. Uh, I do want to share that, uh, for those of you out there, uh, and pretty much every one of you uh, out there has a story that needs to be written. And uh, if you are at all thinking about how best to get your story out into the world, check out roundtablecompanies.com, Corey's company, again, roundtablecompanies.com. 
Corey Blake, man, uh, such a pleasure to have you. I wish you and your family and your loved ones an awesome holiday season. I cannot wait to bump into you in 2017. And uh, I think it's going to be a great year, man. I, I really do. And I'm excited. No doubt about it, brother. Thank you so much for holding the space for me and and uh, and for seeing me. That was uh, this was a unique opportunity for me to be with someone who who was prepared and uh, and who has the ability to see that alignment of uh, of language and truth from a place that I see it also. So it's also incredibly profoundly meaningful for me to share that with you. So thank you. Absolutely, absolutely, man. I look forward to uh, our paths crossing soon. And uh, happy holidays, brother. You too, brother. Take care. See ya. I hope you enjoyed hearing our interview with Corey. If you're interested in a transcribed version of this show or want to listen to more episodes of the Built on Purpose podcast, please visit yscouts.com forward slash podcast. Also, if you'd like to recommend someone as a guest for the show, please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening. 